Pastor Steve Converse to begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. There's a lot of things that we can be consumed with. There's a lot of things that we can put our desire upon. And there's a lot of good things that we can put our desire upon. But let us not forget what God has done in our lives. George Harrison wrote the song, I've Got My Mind Set on You. And he said it would take a lot of time and a lot of money. But today, we want to focus on a different mindset. And it'll take more than just time and money. It'll take a work of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Our series is called, What is Your Mind Set On? We're in Romans chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Join us there as we learn to set our minds on Christ. Here's Pastor Steve with today's broadcast. Um, But as we turn our hearts to uh, God's Word uh, this morning, Romans chapter 8, I I just want to read for us verses 4 through 11 of Romans chapter 8. Actually start in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to start a little mini-series here in Romans 8. We're talking about living the fulfilled spirit life, the spirit-filled life. Last couple, three weeks, we the last three messages in Romans, I should say, we've been looking at no condemnation in Christ. How there's no condemnation for us in Christ. Those who have been saved by the blood of Christ are saved to the uttermost. There's nothing that can happen. There's nothing that anybody can do. There's nothing that can cancel that transaction. But Paul makes a shift here and he begins to question what we desire. And so I want to look at for the next couple weeks, what is your mind set on? What is your mind set on? What do you desire? In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, we read there, For those who live according to the flesh, look at what it says, Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, 
set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Bible has a lot to say about setting our minds on certain things. And we're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. So today's kind of like an introductory to this part of Scripture. Introduction to it. That word, setting the mind, it's translated and it means to set their minds, to have a a bent towards something. Something that occupies your heart's desires. To desire something. That's what that means. It's referring to what occupies a person's mind. It can also refer to obsessions that we may have. We all have them. In other words, your life will never become obsessed with whatever your mind has not first become set on. You know, your mind is so easily obsessed with things. And your mind set, or your, what your, your mind thinks about, what is in your mind, it's very important. The Bible speaks a lot about our minds, about our hearts. But your mindset really will determine how you act. It will motivate you in what you do, in what you say, in what you feel. It even determines who you will allow to influence your life. It decides what you will choose as a source of knowledge. It affects your view of every experience that you ever have. It shapes your value system. It dominates your private and public life. What you set your mind on is very, very important. And God knew that. And so he gives great emphasis here in our text. And he keeps on, Paul keeps on reiterating, what is your mind set on? What is your mind set on? The more you love something, the more you will become like it. Have you ever heard that? The more you love something, the more you will become like it. You know, when we were over in Hawaii, we saw a lot of people who were into surfing. And you know what? It didn't surprise me. They look like surfers. <laughs> they dress like a surfer. They talk like, hey, dude. They talk like a surfer. You know, they had the bleach hair. They, they had the whole thing. Why? Because they love surfing. I've talked to people that love tennis. And they're all about tennis. You know, they wear the little sweaty things around their ankles and their wrists and everything. And boy, they're just all about tennis. You know, you talk to somebody who's into rock climbing, you know, and they got the, the backpack and they got the whole thing, you know, and they're, they're lean, mean, and they get out there on the rock and they just, you know, they, they just live that. Or some of you may be into hunting or fishing. All you have to do is look at the car, you drive a truck. Pennsylvania, it's real easy. The guy with the, got a gun in the back of the rack and a pole. And I mean, it's real simple. Out here, it's not, not probably legal to do that. So you don't see that as often. But you can tell by the way people dress, by the way people act, what they enjoy, what they are obsessed with. I don't mean that in a bad way. We all have desires. We all have likes and dislikes. I want to ask you this morning, what are you devoted to? Upon what things have you set your mind? In other words, what are your obsessions? (laughs) I read a little story this past week when I was studying about John Audubon. If you ever heard of John Audubon, but he was born in the late 1700s. And at a very early age, John Audubon revealed his love for two things, art and birds. Get it? Audubon Society, you know? Pretty famous guy. Um, He would rise, the story tells us, at midnight, 
night after night, and he would go into the swamps to study certain night hawks. One summer, he repeatedly visited the bayou near New Orleans to observe a shy water bird. He would stand almost up to his neck in stagnant waters, scarcely breathing while poisonous water moccasins swam past his face. It was a life-threatening work, but he was reported to have said with great joy, What of it? I now have the pictures of the birds. He was obsessed with birds. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, we have a lot of information today because of John Audubon. And it's a wonderful thing to study the handiwork of God. But because of that desire, John Audubon was devoted to studying birds. I mean, he risked his life. He suffered every discomfort without any regret. I mean, just the idea of being in a swamp up to your neck in stagnant waters, you know, forget about the snakes. Just the idea of the stagnant water is enough to gross me out. What did he do? He did all that just to study what he loved. I know of people who are passionate about far less important things. It never really ceases to amaze me what people are passionate about when you stop and think about it what people are devoted to doing. The truth is this. What you love, you think about. And what you think about, you do. Because what you think about, you are. That's a very important truth. What you love, you end up thinking about. And what you think about, you end up doing. Because what you think about is what you are. In other words, you are what you have been becoming. <laughs> Solomon put it this way, Proverbs 23, 7. He said, for as a man, what? Thinks in his heart, so he is. Or Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26 says this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's speaking to God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Somebody ought to write a song. Oh, we already got one. That's right. That's a good good song. Psalm 73. Or Romans, just a couple pages to the right in your Bible. Romans 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He had his heart set upon the soul's of people that needed to be saved. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, same word, desire, we make it our desire to please Him. There's a lot of things that we can be consumed with. There's a lot of things that we can put our desire upon. And there's a lot of good things that we can put our desire upon. But let us not forget what God has done in our lives. Let us not forget where we've been in Romans. Because we began in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I was listening to Danny's message, and one of the things he said was a problem with a lot of Christians today is they don't know who they are in Christ. They don't know their identity in Christ. 
That's so true. Christian after Christian I talk to who's dealing with major things in their life, and whether it's depression or whether it's financial, whatever, they forget who they are in Christ. The problem becomes bigger than their God. And we have to be reminded continually that in Christ there's now no condemnation. And just that fact alone should give us a little obsession for God, should give us a little obsession for his word, should give us a little obsession, a desire to fellowship with God's people. When we stop and we realize what God has done for us. You know, there's a lot more to be said about that, but there's not only no condemnation in Christ, but I just want to review quickly, and I'm not even going to read the verses. I'm just, they're going to be up on the screen here. But what happens to those of us who are in Christ? I got two pages here of stuff. Well, one page. About three slides. Jesus says, first of all, they're redeemed. Secondly, they're alive to God. They're possessors of eternal life. They're free from the law of sin and death. They're members of one spiritual body. They're sharers in Christ's work. They're sanctified. They're recipients of grace. They're secure in death. They're bold to speak the truth. They're new creatures. They're free. They're justified. They're recipients of the blessings given to Abraham. They're sons of God. They're one with others regardless of race, gender, or social condition. The recipient of every spiritual blessing in heaven. They're seated in the heavens. They're created for good works. They're brought near to God. They're partakers with Jews of the promises. They're forgiven by God. They're encouraged. They're at peace. They're provided for. Anticipating the resurrected body. They're overseen by providence. They're alive. And 2 Timothy lastly says 2.10 that we're saved. All those things happen to those who are in Christ. But it's interesting in verse 4, at the end of verse 4 where we left off last time, it says, but according to the Spirit. All these things happen because of God's work in our life. These aren't things that we conjure up. These aren't things that we can manufacture. Our study in Romans has brought us to these chapters that we come to today. But I want us to go back to the Gospel of John. Because I think that we need to have a proper perspective of what's going on here. Look at John chapter 8. And this little story that we're going to read here speaks to the very fact of not being condemned in Christ. And it speaks to a lot of things, and we'll... We'll tell you what that is in a second. But in, in John chapter 8, look at verse, well, let's just look, start at verse 1. They went to each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? Kind of a disgusting situation, if you understand what culturally is going on here. The law required that there be two or three 
or even more witnesses to a crime. That was very clear. In other words, you had to actually witness it. And if this requirement had been met, as the leaders seem to have been claiming, the witnesses would also have had to see the man who was involved. (laughs) That they did not bring the man before Jesus suggests that this... Uh, he may have been part of this plot, and, and he may have just been part of this thing to try to trick Jesus. It's a trap. In other words, these leaders really didn't care what the law said. They didn't really care about the woman. They were only intent on trying to trap Jesus because they hated him, because he stood for truth. And you know what? It was kind of clever the way they went about it. Because Jesus was known for being compassionate. We know that. And so he would be expected to forgive the woman. But if he did that publicly, Jesus would be accused of throwing God's law aside. And what kind of prophet would do that? And so they were trying to discredit him as a teacher being sent by God. On the other hand, if he condemned the woman... The leaders would laugh at him and scorn and and mock his words when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, no, I'll kill you. See, they they were kind of looking to trap him. They thought they had him in a box, as they thought many times before. (laughs) You know the story. Jesus fulfilled the law by demanding that all its requirements be met. Let those who witnessed the sin come forward and cast the first stones. That's what he said, as the law required. But let them be sure that they weren't guilty themselves, which they would be, even of this crime, if they had been part of the plot to trap the woman. So when the the accusers failed to come forward, Jesus exercised the right to judge her not on the basis of the law, which she clearly broke, but on the basis of his coming death for sinners. And that's exactly what he says. We know how the story ends. He asks the woman, where are the accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, nobody's here, after she looks up. And he answered, verses 10, 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I, what? Condemn you. And from now on, what? Sin no more. No condemnation for those that are in Christ. I tell you that story because it's an exact representation of what we studied in the first four verses of Romans. We have this great news of freedom from condemnation in Christ. And we've studied all that. And you can get the tapes, listen to that. It means that God has saved and is saving a great company of people by the work of Jesus Christ. We have the law, but like the the woman in John's gospel here, we are unable to keep it. So we're condemned by it. We cannot be set free from the law's condemnation by law because the law is powerless to do so. We've studied that. 
But the Bible says what the law could not do, God did by sending his son to be an offering for our sin. See, Jesus is saying to us, neither do I condemn you, go in peace. But as we come to verses 3 and 4, we discover that it's not merely a question of our being delivered from law's condemnation. Christ has delivered us from the law's condemnation. And he's delivered us from the law's power. When he died, he started the process of sanctification. The process of making us more like Christ. And not merely to provide a satisfaction for the wrath of God. But he also, it says, and he And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. In Romans 8, this is what God, through the Apostle Paul, is sharing with us. That in Christ there is no condemnation. In other words, you are free from all the condemnation. But what did he also say? Now leave your life of sin. There has to be a change. See, what this is teaching us is very clear, that justification and sanctification always go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't become more like Christ if God hasn't justified you. And if you're not justified, you're not going to live in a sanctified manner. Don't ever think that justification is sanctification. It is not. Justification is merely God declaring you righteous, even though you're not. Sanctification is the process of God making us more holy, more separated onto him. See, we're not saved because of any good that we do, right? We know that. It's not of works. If that were the case, Jesus would have told the woman, leave your life of sin, and if you do that, then I won't condemn you. But he didn't do that, did he? He said right out of the box, you know what? I don't condemn you either. Now go and what? Sin no more. No condemnation leads to a holy life. Just because justification is not sanctification and sanctification is not justification, we are not to think that sanctification is somehow unimportant. And this has kind of crept into the church, that somehow you can get saved and then you do whatever you want. You live however you want. That's why the church of Christ is in such disarray today. According to Romans 8, sanctification is the very end for which God saved us by sending his son to be an offering for our sin. The Bible says God condemned sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app, new and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org, and follow the prompts. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.